I'm Arthur Snell. A major war is taking place on the European continent with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, bringing you a series of special episodes to help you understand the crisis as it unfolds. This is Doomsday Watch. Welcome back to Doomsday Watch. We hope you're finding these war bulletins valuable. A quick reminder that you can support our work on the crowdfunding app Patreon from as little as £3 per month. Just search Patreon Doomsday Watch or follow the link in the show notes. We've talked a lot in this series of podcasts about the kinetic war taking place in Ukraine. But there's another war that Russia is fighting, hybrid war, and it's fighting that against Western countries, including the UK. Neil Barnett and Helena Ivanov have published a report on that very topic, and they're joining me today to talk about it. Neil, Helena, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Helena, um, if I could start with you first, help our listeners understand what is hybrid warfare? What, 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 what does that term mean? Well, one of the ways in which we can understand it is trying to use alternative methods which are not necessarily, you know, sending troops on the ground, which is how most people think about regular warfare. Instead, in hybrid warfare, we're using other methods to try and achieve political aims in a given country. It can range from cybersecurity, espionage, information warfare, which often includes fake news. Um, It could also involve the processes through which uh, one government may be trying to influence the political outcome in others through elections, for instance, or through the outcomes of various referendums. And that's sort of the thing that we've tried to investigate. What is Russia doing in the UK when it comes to hybrid warfare right now and in the past? So in that sense, uh, your report, which, as I mentioned, uh, has been published via the Henry Jackson Society, Russia's hybrid war against the UK, time to fight back against the Kremlin. It's a contrast from the war that we're seeing in Ukraine, a kinetic war, and it's a war in this information space. Um, Neil, if I can turn to you, uh, one area that the report it covers quite extensively is the world of intelligence and security. And this is actual Russian spies and what they're doing here in the UK. What can we say about this? Are we are outside the, the sort of intelligence community. What is there to know on this subject? Well, of course, it, it, it's very difficult to know because it's extremely secretive. And, and as for what you can know, it's also very difficult to talk about in the public domain because it's naturally conspiratorial and prone to speculation. And I think that the you know most members of the general public regard it as belonging in the realm of, of James Bond movies and so on. So... Yeah. Um, it's slightly unhelpful answer, but there, there's a limit to what we can know. And and with what we can know, it's difficult to discuss. Yeah. I mean, some of the things are undeniable. You know, it, we, we know that, that two GRU, Russian military intelligence officers, came to this country and tried to murder Sergei Skripal. We know, of course, that in, in an earlier period, Alexander Litvinenko was also murdered here. But something that jumped out from the report, to me, certainly, was a quote from Dr. Andrew Foxall, who's a sort of specialist in this intelligence area, saying that Russia has as many as 200 case officers in the UK, handling upwards of 500 agents. This seems like an extraordinary uh, high level of activity. Yeah, uh, it, it is. But I don't think it's, it's particularly shocking. I mean, when you look at the scale of the, of the Russian intelligence activity uh, and, and organisations, it's actually very much reminiscent of, of the Russian army. It's big, 
a lot of resources are devoted to it. It relies on uh, essentially on, on brutality and uh, mass, but it's not always immensely competent and it tends to be riven by corruption. And the thing that comes out from what we're seeing in, in Ukraine and, and our domestic situation, there's a, a parallel that we drew out in the report. Really, in the post-Soviet era, Ukraine's the first time that Russia's army has come up against an adversary with the will and the means to resist. And they're not doing very well. And in the last 15 years, what we're saying is that we may have had the, the means to resist in the UK, but we haven't shown the will. And if the will were there, we could resist quite effectively. It's not rocket science, as they say. Yeah. So one area where you, you've got sort of hard data on this is actually the resources devoted by MI5 um, to countering hostile state activity, which, which basically means Russia, maybe China and Iran, a few others, but clearly you know, Russia would be a big element of that. So can you say a bit about how, how little effort is devoted to that? Yeah, the figures that we used came from the Parliamentary Intelligence and Security Committee report on uh, Russia, which came out a couple of years ago, which you may remember the government was not enthusiastic about publishing and it was delayed a good, a good 18 months. There's a remarkable figure in it. In the year 2008, which was the nadir, I think 3% of counterintelligence security resources were allocated to hostile state activity. Now, I think the main reason for that is the overwhelming focus on counterterrorism. Yeah. And the terrorism uh, threat is, is hardly receding. So probably we just need more resources overall. That, that number's obviously risen from 3%, but it's uh, likely still to be, to be inadequate. And a lot of capacity has been lost in recent decades. You also talk in your report about political money laundering, actually, is, is a term that, that you use. Uh, could you explain sort of what you mean by that and then how, how that takes shape here in the UK? What we think is going on with, uh, with the Russians is that really large sums of money are used to distort political systems. But that money has to be laundered in order that its origin isn't clear. And what that means is that it, it generally doesn't come from the Russian state. It comes from proxies. Uh, that's large Russian businesses, uh, oligarchs, and so on. And the money is transformed, as it would be in criminal money laundering, so that it can become a permissible uh, donation. This seems to be uh, quite a substantial threat, and it falls between the responsibilities of the National Crime Agency and the police and MI5. So the former will say, well, we don't do, you know, counterintelligence, we don't do counterespionage. And MI5 will say, well, we don't do money laundering and forensic investigations. And the result is that nobody's dealing with this. Is it fair to say that within the political structures, you, you've got obviously the Electoral Commission, and also political parties, and even without descending into cynicism, it doesn't seem that political parties don't seem to have resources to do due diligence on their donations. And, and the Electoral Commission clearly doesn't have a sort of investigative uh, arm that, that is capable of, of kind of managing this sort of thing. That's right. You know, in terms of resources and capability, they're hugely out of their depth here. We're talking about, you know, the highest grade of 
multi-jurisdiction um, money laundering activity here, which requires things like disclosure orders from judges to be executed in other countries and so on. And that, that's just not something the Electoral Commission can do. Yeah. This discussion of political influence brings us into the idea of information and media, not least because reports and interest in Russian influence have increased significantly since the invasion of Ukraine. Russia's information warfare and its attempt to influence political outcomes through media is nothing new. It's something that Russia has used in various countries. And it's also just not even uniquely related to Russia. I think an increasing number of countries is realizing the power of media and is trying to use that to influence political outcomes across the globe. And I think the rise of social media platforms like Facebook or Twitter or even apps like Telegram and WhatsApp have enabled these countries to do these kinds of things. And two crucial things are happening. One is the attempt to build narratives and discourses. And at this very moment, to portray what Russia is doing is just and as noble. And that's that that goes in line with the argumentation that they are denazifying Ukraine. Um, the other thing that they are trying to do, which is something that we've we've seen across various cases, is trying to destroy the very idea of objective truth. It's like statements that we've heard that there are such things as alternative facts. So it's just trying to bombard people with so much information in instances where we know that people have no ability to establish and verify whether the information they're seeing is actually accurate or not. And of course it is working because we know that, you know, people have a tendency to look out for sources of information that confirm their pre-existing beliefs. And if you bombard sufficiently diverse set of sources of information, you ensure that people get to see what you want them to see. And that makes it really difficult to establish what accurate actually is. So that's sort of the thing that we've seen Russia do. And in practical terms, um, this isn't just about the obvious things, is it? Like the RT, you know, TV channel, news channel. You know, how does this information reach a normal consumer of media? That's exactly why in the report we're arguing that restriction of large outlets like RT or Sputnik is just not enough. For instance, there are various telegram groups and telegram channels that are not restricted through which Russian bots are able to disseminate a lot of information. We've seen the ability to influence various outcomes by using, you know, various research websites and tests that are posted on, on Facebook. We know about the troll farms, the troll farms that are located throughout Twitter. And while there is some interest in trying to restrict all of these bots and fake accounts, with the rise of social media platforms, I'm not really sure that that is even in and of itself possible. In a way, I think that takes us to a, a really important issue of the law, and that's sort of another element of, of this report. Um, Clearly, it's, it's not just simply about having the right laws, but do we have the right laws to deal with this hybrid warfare? There's some fairly obvious laws that we could more or less copy, particularly from the US, which we think would make quite a good contribution. I mean, one caveat is that we tried to avoid in this report recommending too many laws and, and new institutions and reorganizations because there's a, a tendency in the UK to just rearrange the deck chairs to give the impression of activity. And, you know, we, we have the structures and laws that we need in many regards. They're just not properly used or enforced. But there are yeah. some, some legal additions that we propose. One is you know, the Foreign Agents Registration Act, which the US has, which obliges uh, law firms, lobbyists, consultants, and so on, representing 
foreign interests and foreign states, uh, it obliges them to register and not to register as a serious offence. And that register is publicly disclosed. And that, that legislation was brought in in the 1930s to counter Nazi influence efforts. So we're getting on for a century behind the US here. Yeah. Uh, espionage law, you know, at the moment, uh, the person who commits an offence in a case of espionage is generally a person who has broken the Official Secrets Act. But even then, it's rather difficult to bring a prosecution. Um, now, you know, there, there's two glaring gaps here. One is that the active partner in the espionage, the person who solicits the information, can often just fall through the gaps. There's, there's no way of prosecuting them. Yeah. And that's more likely to be the, the Russian intelligence officer. It, it is, yes. And, and the second is that, you know, it's, it's quite old-fashioned to imagine espionage simply involves getting access to classified information. And so it may well be that the person conducting espionage on, on behalf of our adversaries has never signed the Official Secrets Act. Um, but there still ought to be a way to prosecute them. Right. One of the things you've talked about is this so-called anti-slap legislation, that strategic... Yeah litigation against public participation. This is basically the sort of libel tourism issue, isn't it? Where wealthy, uh, you know, not, they don't have to be Russian, but, but they have often in recent case studies, uh, wealthy individuals have managed to litigate to prevent a book from coming out or prevent an article from being written or, or some other thing like that. You know, London continues to be this this uh, sort of global hotspot for libel tourism. How how can we do something about that? Well, the interesting thing here is it, when we were framing the media section of this report, the thing that was foremost in our minds was not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. You know, we don't want to become a restrictive and repressive state ourselves. You have to preserve openness and free speech. But what what these slap cases do is allow our adversaries to import repressive media environment into our country yeah. um, by, by using the courts to, to intimidate their adversaries. And, uh, and you can see clearly the, the intimidatory intention to bring, uh, often to bring quite hopeless cases which last for years and will just drain the resources and the will of individual journalists and campaigners and so on. Yeah, and, and that's a really important point, isn't it? That it's, in many cases, the, these people bringing the cases are, don't have any expectation of winning, but they know that they have deeper pockets so they can just drain, drain you if you're a writer or a journalist or a researcher. Exactly. Uh, but, you know, we've seen in the last few months, particularly in the case of Tom Burgess, the author of Kleptopia, and uh, Catherine Belton, uh, a brilliant book, uh, Putin's People, that uh, judges seem to be uh, taking a, um, a different line to the line they were taking, uh, you know, three, four years ago. It, it, it seems that there's a change afoot. Neil. Helena, you've talked us through your report and its focus on the UK, but I'd like to widen the lens here and think on a more global perspective. One question I had, and, and I, I'd be interested in both of your views, is given the challenges that Russia is facing in Ukraine, 
Is that going to make them more or less likely to carry out this sort of hybrid warfare? Because I could see the sort of argument going in either direction. I think if anything, Russia is probably going to continue doing what it's doing right now, particularly when it comes to information warfare. And I suspect that as autumn and winter approach, there will be a huge jump in its attempt to use information warfare. I think, you know, it, it is pretty clear that the package of sanctions that was adopted and probably any next package of sanction that is likely to be adopted against Russia will also carry costs for Europe. We can expect the inflation to rise. We're seeing that happen already. We've seen what's happening with gas prices. All of that is not going to be very comfortable for Europeans. And if Russia can like jump in through all of these channels of communication that I've discussed earlier and try at least to convince some Europeans that the war in Ukraine is just or that the package of sanctions that the EU is adopting against Russia is completely insane. If, if, if they can start convincing Europeans who live in democratic societies and who are supporting these packages of sanctions that actually, no, 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 these packages of sanctions are bad, he can create disunity. And 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 I think that's exactly what, what he wants. So I don't know if Neil has similar views as I do on this issue. The, you know, I don't think that the focus of these activities will be making us think well of Russia uh, or, or even to persuade us that their war aims are just that I think, you know, even even they know that's not really going to work. But to persuade us that, you know, Zelensky is 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 a fraud and just an actor created by sinister forces. And do you really want to see your standard of living go down the tubes for him and a bunch of corrupt oligarchs? Um, I think we're going to see a lot, a lot more of that. But on on other measures, uh, I think Russia's ability to create mischief will be constrained simply because of the measures that have been brought in as a result of the war. And we've proposed further measures. But things like restrictions of uh, travel, you know, airliners and private jets coming into the country, um, shutting down of financial channels. We think that the embassy and associated trade office and, and military office and so on should be radically reduced. And these sorts of measures just reduce the attack surface, if you like, um, available to the Russians. In terms of the sort of media and information war, uh, a question perhaps for Helena. I was thinking that <laughs> often this seems to focus around particular democratic events and coming down the line, clearly uh, the US's midterms are of great significance. Um do we see evidence that Russia is sort of engaging in, in trying to disrupt that process? I'm going to slightly disagree on that because whilst obviously, you know, particular kinds of activities are taking place around major political events like elections or referendums, and I suspect we will see the similar scenario for, for midterms, I think Russian activity never stops. I think right. this kind of information warfare is just continuously happening. It's just how much and at which points are we paying more attention to it? And we tend to pay more attention to it when it has a major impact. And that impact is usually the most visible in instances like elections and referenda. But I think I think this happens nonstop. I think they are trying to overall change perceptions that people hold about Western democracies, about the, the Western values. I'm originally from, from Serbia, from Belgrade, and, and one of the major questions for the Serbian government is Kosovo. It's like, you know, Serbia does not want to recognize Kosovo's independence. There are some EU states who also haven't recognized it. Most of the world has. Negotiations keep happening between Belgrade and Pristina. Yeah. Very recently, Putin gave a statement where he basically said that if 
Western countries are supportive of the idea that Kosovo is independent, why are they not supportive of the idea of Donbas as independent? He made a very similar argument in 2014 following the annexation of Crimea, where again, he tried to equalize the Western overall stance towards Kosovo in comparison to the Western's overall stance towards Crimea. And I think I think they keep on doing that. I think they keep on trying to draw these so-called analogies in the attempt to undermine the Western approach towards democracy and towards the values it the West upholds. Fascinating. And sort of beyond the, the, the countries of the democratic West, you know, loosely defined the sort of NATO, NATO countries uh, and, and its close partners and allies, in what we might call the global South, but I'm thinking particularly kind of BRICS nations, it seems that Russia's information war has worked very well, that, that there is a perception that there's a perfectly legitimate argument for what Russia's doing. They're acting in their own self-defense, however ridiculous that might sound to us. Um, so what's going on there? Why, why is that working so well in, in that context? I mean, from my point of view, uh, you know, you're looking here often at, at countries which have a long history going back into the Cold War of collaboration on big international questions with Russia and, and, you know, was supported heavily by the Soviet Union. I mean, if you look at South Africa, which has effectively taken the Russian side, um, the ANC elite, um, mostly uh, Soviet trained. Um, it's, uh, It's not a very fashionable or popular thing to say, but it's true. That long standing allegiance, I think, goes a long way to explaining what's going on. Finally, um, we've talked a lot about sort of the challenge. We've touched a little bit on some of the remedies, but what are what would you both say are the sort of the key recommendations arising from this report? What are the things that the British government can do and do fairly quickly that will actually make a difference? So I just want to say, like, given the amount of channels and ways in which Russia can wage its information warfare, obviously, like, no policy is going to be absolutely perfect, but. Some of the things that we've suggested are content warnings. So similarly to content warnings that we've had during the COVID-19 pandemic, when when you want to share stuff about COVID or vaccinations, the apps would alert you that you're sharing stuff about that. Um, We think that can work for a lot of things. Um, The second thing we've recommended is rebuttal. So obviously Russia keeps on trying to destroy the idea of objective truth in and of itself. And clearly we can't respond to every single instance in which Russia is spreading misinformation. But if we have something really major, something that's likely to stick, something that Russia is likely to insist on, we need to have rebuttals. We need to have major political figures refute what Russia is saying and explain why that's not accurate. Thirdly, we've suggested creating an agency of experts that's continuously going to monitor the situation on the ground when it comes to information warfare and propose various policies with, with, you know, the quick rise of IT and social media platforms. This constantly changes and Russia's abilities are constantly increasing in terms of like technologically what they can do. So we need like a team of experts to 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 follow what is going on and to provide policies. And then finally, given that, you know, it's not enough to just restrict major media outlets, because as we've discussed, there is a variety of other sources of information that people can access, which could potentially contain Russian propaganda. We've also suggested um, increasing Ofcom's ability when it comes to like who they can revoke licenses from. That's sort of what we've suggested for the media so far. Yeah, yes, and from my side of things, 
You know, I think the problem that we that we have is not necessarily a problem of means. I think you know we have the means to address this problem. It's a it's a problem of will. We've had governments which are fundamentally not taking these matters seriously, and actually, we, which generally are not very interested in matters of strategy and matters of national security. Uh, so, you know, there are elements of myopia, um, cowardice and greed here. None of it's terribly attractive, frankly. Um, and, you know, what, what we've seen in the Ukraine crisis is, is some laudable stuff. I mean, yesterday I and I saw that Britain's just obtained a couple of dozen um, 155mm artillery systems, which were refurbished and sent to Ukraine. You know, this is fantastic. It's like sending the end laws before a single shot was fired. And you you really can't fault that. Yeah. But at the same time, it, there's a superficiality to it. You're seeing, yeah, you know, there's fighting going on in Ukraine. We have to support the Ukrainians. We'll send them this kit. That's great. But there's nothing deeper than that. There's no reassessment of our own strategic posture. There's no uh, consideration of further defense spending when, you know, our, our armed forces have been hollowed out and eviscerated. Yeah. Um, there's a superficiality to it. And what I would like to see is that we would have, uh, we would have leaders who take these matters seriously because in the end, the most important duty, the paramount duty of any elected leader is to ensure national security. If you don't have that, you have nothing. Absolutely. Um, if I can just jump in on... Yeah, please. The European Council on Foreign Relations has done a research about like Europeans' attitude towards the war in Ukraine. And the polling is more like, it's not as unified anymore. And it seems that there is a chance that people could become even more divided, especially if this war ends up being extremely long and carrying huge economic costs for the Europeans. And I think that's exactly something, you know, these kinds of reports that are showing this is something that's going to like push Russia even more to sort of try and increase the divide. And will other countries learn from it? So is is Russia's hybrid war going to be a model for China, Turkey, Iran, you know, and so on? I, I very much suspect so. And that's why I think that, you know, while obviously our report is focused on like Russia and the UK in particular, I think when it comes to the information warfare, some of these things are applicable to, to other countries as well. And in fact, I think that now when we've seen what, you know, what can happen from an information warfare and, and the Russia situation has escalated. I think we better start taking seriously other countries and other systemic uh, rivals before, you know, before it's too late. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's a brilliant point to end this discussion. Uh, Neil, tell us where we can, where the listeners can find this report. You can go to the website of the, the Henry Jackson Society. Brilliant. So uh, Neil Barnett, Helena Ivanov, thank you very much for joining us on Doomsday Watch. Thank you for having us. Thank you. We hope you find these war bulletins valuable amongst the huge amount of information out there. So don't forget to subscribe and help spread the word by rating us five stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other app that has ratings. And if you really like the show, you can support us on the crowdfunding app Patreon. You'll get the shows early, ad-free, and help shape future episodes, all from as little as £3 per month. Just search Patreon Doomsday Watch or follow the link in the show notes.
Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.